0: Well, good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to the JAR. My name's Chris, and I uh, want to wish you a great Fourth of July weekend. hope you had a chance to kind of hang out and be with family, kind of chill a little bit. Uh, we did, and so I uh, hope you were able to also. I'd like to jump right in this morning by having us look at our big idea this morning. And you can fill this out in your program, or if you want, uh, we have an app, uh, the JAR app. You can go on the Google Playlist or on the App Store and get that. But here is our uh, big idea this morning. With great power comes great responsibility. With great power comes great responsibility. Now, does anyone know who uh, coined that term? It's a uh, it's a great philosophical person, um, a philosopher of old, and it is Spider-Man. So, uh, <laughs> uh, if you didn't know that, uh, that's who it is. But actually... Um, I did some research this week, and this term, the first place they saw it ever kind of coined was in the uh, 1793 uh, French National Convention, and that's where it came first. And then Winston Churchill, uh, the Prime Minister of uh, England, actually, when he referred to governments and when he referred to politicians, he gave this phrase, uh, this phrase, with uh, power. Comes, with great power comes great responsibility. Now, uh, over the last few weeks, we've been talking about a, a very powerful person. A guy by the name of David who became king of Israel. But even though he was king, there were still some uh, rivals that he had in his life. And in week one, we looked at his rival, a big uh, giant named Goliath. And in week two, we looked at his uh, rival uh, king, that preceded him, King Saul, and uh, the truth is, up until this point, like David was hitting a hundred percent, and uh, he, he was doing everything extremely well. He was undefeated. Um, there was nothing in his kingdom that was out of ray, out of array, and uh, there was uh, goodness and there was grace, and he was giving glory and honor to God, and everything was going well until one spring evening you see the scriptures say that uh, David took a nap one day and he woke up and he walked out to the edge of his rooftop and he started looking out at the kingdom and being thankful when all of a sudden he noticed a woman who was bathing and her name was Bathsheba and he looks at her, and he's like, I've got to have her. And so he stares at her, he desires her, and then he sends a messenger out to bring her to him. You see, David had power like was unseen. And what the king's orders were, everyone had to follow. The problem is, is that even though he has great power, in the story we're going to look at today, he does not have good responsibility. By the way, sometimes when people read this story of David and Bathsheba, a lot of people that I've heard either teach on it um, or give a message will many times put the blame on Bathsheba. Like somehow it was her fault, and I've heard messages I've wanted to leave uh, before when I've heard these. But the reality is, there is nothing in this text that indicts her as the person to blame. Most likely, uh, what happened was they would collect water in water barrels, put them on top of their home, and while they were there, during the day it would get hot so it would warm it up. And there is no woman in Israel during that time that was afraid that someone was going to be looking at her because they were either out to war or they were working in the fields. And so, Bathsheba did not think that she was going to have a peeping Tom looking at her. But she had a peeping David that was looking at her. You see, it wasn't Bathsheba that was trying to seduce the king. It was the king that was trying to seduce Bathsheba. Now, when the servant comes back, the the servant does a very brave thing. I mean, this is the king. And the servant comes and he... He speaks to the king, and he's pretty abrupt, and he says, David, this is somebody's wife. This is somebody's daughter. Don't fall into this trap. Don't do this. Don't do anything stupid. You know, sometimes God gives whispers to you and I as kind of a warning signal not to do something very stupid. Sometimes he does it with friends that are around us, Sometimes it'll be in a message. Sometimes it's when we're reading our Bible. Sometimes it's when we're simply trying to listen to his voice. But God will come and he'll he'll say, be careful, don't do this. And he kind of gives us a warning light. Now, we have those kind of warning lights in our day also, and they're quite concrete. And uh, we have it in what is a stoplight. And we have this stoplight, and you're driving, and what's always interesting to me about the stoplight is that there are two of these different lights that everyone knows, and there's no ambiguity, but there's one of them that we're not so sure about. Now, we know that there is a red light, and what does the red light mean? Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, Some of you don't follow that very well, but anyways... Now, I want you to know that red actually means uh, to stop, not to go through it, okay? And uh, then we have green. What, what does green mean? Look at that. Much better than red. Some of you were hesitant on red, but you knew, you know, green means go. Much better. And then there's one that I'm always not so sure of, and uh, it's this next light, and it's yellow, and what does yellow mean? Yes, yeah, see, there's many different answers at this point. I'm concerned about all of you, okay? Uh, Very much. Our our traffic people are so concerned about you. Uh, That's why we have the crossing guard out there. Now, um, folks, I didn't even tell you what yellow means, and you already are telling me what it means to you. And uh, so I'm concerned. But usually, yellow means a couple of different things. One, when people see yellow, they immediately break and they stop. Other people, when they see yellow they put the pedal to the metal and they accelerate. And then people will say things like this. It was orange. You know, like, like, no, it it was yellow and you went through and it was red. Well, God sends a warning light to David and he says, this is someone's daughter. This is someone's wife and typically because david was so connected to god he was a man after god's own heart in the first 10 chapters of second samuel everything he could think of to please god he would do and any warning like that he would have heard from a servant that said this is someone's daughter this is someone's wife he would have immediately stopped but the problem is now david has power and he wants to control And he doesn't use his power in a responsible way, and he abuses it, and he goes right through the yellow light. Now, I want to pause there just for a moment because there are some of you who are sitting there right now who perhaps you have crossed a line already, or you're getting ready to get to a line, and you're determining whether or not you're going to cross it. And it may not be in the sexual realm, although it might be, but it might be with your finances, it might be with your job, it might be with some relationship. But there's a warning light that is here today for you, and for some of you, it would be wise if you heeded it. Will you decide to give up your desire and not power up, or will you power up? And try to have your own way. Will you obey God's will? Or will you do your own thing? When well, verse 4, David actually crosses a line in the text. says this, Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Then she went back home. Now, there's something that's missing in this. I don't know if any of you could see it. You know what's missing here? Bathsheba's name, like her name is not mentioned there. In fact, in this chapter, it's only mentioned one time. And then after that, she is described as the girl or her or she. In other words, David has determined that she is just an object now. She no longer has a life. She is property. And it's interesting to me that it says that after she, he slept with her, then she just went back home. There was no cuddling, there was no connecting together, there was nothing. It was simply sex, and then she walked home. And I've often wondered what it must what what must have been going through her head. I mean, it must have been like a walk of shame, every step out of the palace. I cheated on my husband the king took control. And so a month goes by and Bathsheba finally realizes that she's pregnant and she doesn't run to the king and go, hey, I'm so excited we're going to have a baby. But the text actually says this, the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, just three words, He, he writes, she writes a letter, sends to him, just three words: I am pregnant, and then signs her name. Now at this point, David starts freaks out. He starts to freak out. He's like, "Man, I gotta have a cover-up story. Somehow we're gonna have to cover this up, and I don't know what to do. Oh, I know what to do. I'm gonna send a letter out to my commanding officer, Joab, and I'm going to have him." Send me somebody. And the text says this. So David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. Who do you think Uriah is? Bathsheba is who? Husband. What tangled webs we weave when we threaten to deceive. And so David says, bring him here. And so one night Uriah comes to the palace. He's like, hey, David. I am i don't know why I'm here. And he's like, oh, I've heard such good things about you, Uriah. I want you to come on in. This is going to be great. And, uh, you know, I don't want you to even stay here. Actually, I want you to go home and be with your wife. You know what I'm saying, dude? Like, go be with your wife. And David thinks, well, this is going to work out. So he's going to go home. He's been at war. They're going to have you know, whatever that is, hopefully he'll play some Barry White or Sam Smith, and, uh, you know, it's going to be on. But Uriah, the problem is, he's a loyalist, and so he walks out of the palace, and he goes to the servant's quarter, and he falls asleep on the porch, and the servant comes back and says, hey, hey David, did you see what happened? He's like, no, what, what happened? He goes, well, Uriah never went home. He went and he slept on the porch. And David's like, what? What are you talking about? So David says, well, i got to invite him back again. But this time, i got a plan B. And so he invites Uriah back. He goes, hey, hey, come on in, man. He's like, now I want to prepare a feast for you because I've heard such good things about you. And so they go to this big table, and David sits at the table. And I've often wondered in this story, I wonder if Bathsheba sat at that same table Month before for a very different reason. And so now they're sitting at this table, they're eating, and that text actually says that David got Uriah drunk. He's like, Well, if he gets drunk, I get him drunk, and maybe he'll stumble out of here, and he'll just kind of start walking, and he sees him stumble out, and he starts walking down the road towards home, and he's like, All, oh, everything's good, everything's well, and David goes to sleep. And the next day he wakes up and he looks out and there's Uriah on the servant's porch again. He never went home. Uriah was too much of a loyal person. He had friends, fellow soldiers that were on the field. He wasn't going to go and have his fun and leave them alone said, no, no, no. I will not do this. I will not be with my wife if other men can't be with her. And at this point, David's hope kind of goes away. And he's like, I got to do something else. This isn't working. And so he goes and he gets to his desk, he pulls out a note, he writes a note to Joab, the commanding officer, and this is what he says. Put Uriah in the front lines where the fighting is the fiercest, then pull back and leave him exposed so that he's sure to be killed. And so they all come up to the battle, everyone's there, and all of a sudden the entire army pulls back except Uriah, and this is the problem also, folks, when we have a tendency to sin and deceive God is that there's collateral damage. And the text actually says that it's not just Uriah who gets killed, but there's a few other men that are killed as well. And David gets word back that all is well. And he does this in such a cold, calculated way. It's not passion. And now he's got his military chief involved in this. But Joab, he has to follow the orders. It's the king's orders. And he dies. And David gets word and he's excited. But Bathsheba gets word and she's wrecked. The scriptures say that she mourned. And in the Hebrew, it actually has this concept of mourning. It's called Sitting in Shiva. And sitting in Shiva means that for seven days you mourn and no one talks to you. And for seven days there's no talking. And this actually says that it was the type of mourning, the sitting in Shiva, that wasn't just seven days, but went on for an entire month. And then after the month was up, David sent for Bathsheba. He used his power to bring her back. King's orders, come to my house, be my wife. And the story kind of ends with this verse, which says, the Lord was, what's the next word? He was displeased with what David had done. And remember our big idea? With great power comes great responsibility. And David has failed, big time. He wasn't responsible. You know, every single person in this auditorium today, regardless of who you are, you have power. Whether it's in your family, at the workplace, with friends, whatever it is, you have some power. And I was thinking about it this week that there are different types of power, but there are kind of five types of power I want to talk about. The first one is positional power. Some of you have positional power. You have a job You have a title, people report to you, you've got power. For others of you, it's relational power. You're a mom, you're a dad, you're the oldest in your family, you're the youngest in your family, you're the person of all your friends that people turn to, you've got power. Some of you, it's intellectual power. You're just smarter than some people. And sometimes you kind of cower over people who are not as intelligent to get them to do the things that you want them to do. And you have intellectual power. Some of you have financial power. You have money. And so you can dangle out a carrot in front of someone and you can get them to do something. You see with this, with this with parenting all the time. The child, little Billy, is not wanting to go to bed. The parents walk in. Billy, if you'll just go to bed, we'll take you to Target tomorrow. Right? And so, oh, like some of you parents are like, nope, I've never done that before. Last night you did. Anyways, but you're paying today, aren't you? But, but they'll do anything, and they'll use their power financially to get their kids to do what they want. Finally, spiritual power. Maybe you're a small group leader. Maybe you're a volunteer leader. Maybe you're a person who works on a church staff. Whoever it is, you have some power. And the reality is, is that David had all five types of these, and every single person in here... I guarantee you at least have one. And the question is, will we use our power in a responsible way or will we use it irresponsibly? And this is the thing, folks. If you're not careful, you can just be out on a rooftop one day and all of a sudden you can Make some really poor choices. Well, the story goes on, and uh, David has another guy, a guy by the name of Nathan, and Nathan is a prophet. He's like a pastor of our day. And uh, Nathan comes up to him and he says, "David, I got a story for you." David's like, "Man, I love stories. Give me a story." And so uh, David said "Well, uh, are you are you gonna tell me now?" He's like, "Yeah, I'm gonna tell you now." And so Nathan begins to start telling the story. He says, "Well," There's a story about a very, 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 very rich man. And there's a story about a very, very poor man. And the rich man abuses his power and he takes over and he takes control of some of the poor man. And he can't even get through the story. And David interrupts him and says, Whoever that guy is, he's going to get four times the penalty that he gave to this man. And we are going to kill him. And then Nathan, maybe the most powerful words that was ever given to David, he says this. Nathan said to David, what, let's all read it together. You are that man. You're that man. And scripture says that David falls to his knees And he begins to start weeping because he realizes that he has taken his abusive power and gone way too far. You see, folks, there's a slippery uh, slippery slope when it comes to power that sometimes we can abuse. And uh, I'd like to give you kind of three things. First of all is I desire at all costs. Now, desire isn't bad. The reality is we all have desires. God placed desires in us. We have desires to be known, desires to be loved. Desires are a good thing. The problem is is that when I desire something at all costs, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to be able to receive this. You know, there are uh, kind of two types of people uh, when it comes to pets. There are city pet people and there are country pet people. Now, city pet people usually keep their pets inside the house, they pamper them, they take them to the vet, they do all kinds of wonderful things for them, they typically love those pets more than their own family, and we know who you are, okay? Then there are country pet people, they typically don't keep their pets on the inside, but They keep them on the outside and they don't get as attached to them because when you're in the country, sometimes it's survival of the fittest and you get a stray dog or you get a stray cat or something that just lands because you're a country person. When I was growing up, we were country pet people. We did not have any dogs or cats that were in our house, but we had a lot of them on the outside and sometimes people would just dump. They're cats or dogs. We knew they were city people, okay, who couldn't handle their dogs, so we got them. Now, we never took our pets to the vet. Um, City people do all the time. But we didn't, so they never got neutered or they never got spayed. And the problem is when you do that, all of a sudden you get a lot of kittens. And we had one cat named Misty who had so many litters we stopped counting. I'm not sure how many it was. The problem with that cat was she listened to way too much Sam Smith and Barry White. And every time that cat would listen to this, there were just all of these kittens that were coming out. Now, some of you are sitting there right now and you're thinking to yourself, I gave up Fourth of July weekend for this. Like, where's the point? Okay, I'm, I'm landing the plane. Okay, here's the point. A cat can't control Its desires, its desires, controls it. A cat can't have some deep conversation with another cat like, you know, you're going to court me for at least two years. And by the way, I don't like the way you were purring yesterday at me, and I'm not too happy about that. And uh, the truth is, is that I want you to wine and dine me. And you're not going to get any of this until you put a ring on the finger, right? Didn't Beyonce say that, I think, you know? And so, you know, a cat, a, a cat can't do that. Folks, cats don't have conversations like that. People do. Because human beings can control their desires, a cat can't. And here's my question when it comes to desire, and it's this. Do your desires control you, or do you control your desires? And only you can answer that. Do your Desires control you, or do you control your desire? Well, David gets up from his nap. He walks out to the edge of uh, his rooftop. He looks out, and he's like, "Woo!" And he has this desire, and all at first it's not bad, but it's just like all of a sudden then it gets worse because he's like, I've got to not simply desire that, but here's the second thing of his slippery slope. I deserve that. David's going, you know what, I have been in so many battles, so many fights, that I deserve to have her. I have power, I've sacrificed, I've given my life for many things, and I deserve that. Do you ever struggle with that? You worked so many years at a place, or you're the hardest worker, I deserve this, I deserve that, and soon you start finding yourself doing things that you normally wouldn't have done. And the problem is, folks, if you don't check that quickly, your desire, and then you don't check it when it gets to I deserve, the problem is you finally get to a point of I demand. I don't just desire that. I don't deserve it, but it's mine. Bring her to me. I'm the king. She is the object. Bring her to me. And then the damage, the collateral damage, goes to David's family. You see, folks, the story really isn't about Bathsheba at all, and the writer even tries to keep it away from that by only mentioning her name once. The story isn't about Bathsheba because the story never started with Bathsheba. You see, in verse 1, and sometimes it's a good way to look at text, don't go to the punchline until you figure out the story, but in the very first verse, this is what we find. In the spring, at the time when, what are kings supposed to do? Go off to war. David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David, what did he do? Yeah, he didn't go. David took a play off, he took a season off. David said, You know what? I'm undefeated. I got a perfect record. I threw a shutout. Now I deserve something. And I'm going to demand it to come. And he takes his power and he becomes very irresponsible. And that's where he takes the bait. Anybody know uh, who this guy is right here? We'll have a picture. Anybody know who that is? Dave Chappelle. Several years ago, he just like blew up. He's the top comedian in the U.S., maybe in the world. Comedy Central came to him and paid him $50 million for three seasons of the Dave Chappelle show. And uh, he tells a story in which on the third uh, season, fifth episode, he's there. And all of a sudden, he's kind of doing the gig before they get ready to go and do it live. And he tells this joke And there's a person that's on the off stage that starts cracking up hilariously. But Dave Chappelle goes, it wasn't that funny. Like it wasn't that funny of a joke, and yet he's laughing. And all of a sudden, he said it just hit him that he had to get out of there. And so he stepped back from what he was doing. He walked off the stage. He got his phone, picked it up. He called his driver, invited his driver to pick him up the front of the theater of the studio where they were filming and he gets to that point and the driver says hey Dave I thought you were going longer he's like nope he goes well where do you want to go and he goes let's go to the airport he gets to the airport he gets to the counter he doesn't have any tickets they're like uh, sir how can we help you and he just stands there and they finally said do you want to go somewhere And he goes yeah and they said well where do you want to go and he looks up at the board he goes South Africa and so he picks South Africa He gets there. He gets another particular vehicle. He goes off to a monastery for 30 days. And he basically stays in silence. Now back home, everybody had fodder with Dave Chappelle. They're like, he's an addict. He's in rehab somewhere. That's what he's doing. Other people were like, he's gone crazy. He's lost his mind. The pressure's too great for him. He didn't even tell his wife for the first two days. Where he was at. And like all celebrities. Eventually if something like this happens to your life. You wind up on a couch. And do you know whose couch he wound up on? Not Jesus. But very close. According to our culture. Do you know who it is? Oprah. Because everyone who is a celebrity. Eventually winds up on Oprah's couch. And. They have this interview and Oprah's like giving him, you know, some time to talk. And then finally she's like, dude, why did you do it, man? Why did you do this? And she just has this ability to make grown men cry. And he starts tearing up. And this is what Dave Chappelle said. Success can take you to places where your character cannot sustain you. Success can take you to places where your character cannot sustain. Sustain you. And I was thinking about it that it's kind of like a chart. And we see it with David's life. That sometimes our success or the power in our life goes greater than what the rate of our character is going. And my question for you this morning is which are you following? Are you following your success? Are you following your character. Is your character leading the way in your life? Or is it your desire to have power and success? Because if your success continues to be the way, what happens is there's a gap that kind of forms between your character and your success. And that was the problem with David. He had all of this success, but the problem is, after ten chapters, his character Doesn't lead anymore. And on one particular day, he looks out on a spring day, and he's tempted. And it leads to destruction. And once David stays put at home, instead of going off where the kings would go, the enemy comes and tempts him, and he's done. Jesus uh, had a brother named James, and James said some really powerful words. He said this, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting. Me. I can't tell you how many people have wound up either in my office or we're talking or I'm at their home or something and their life is getting destroyed around them. And they'll go, you know, God's been tempting me. What? It says right here, people will say that God is tempting me, but this is what the text says, for God cannot be tempted by evil. Nor does he tempt who? Anyone. It would be totally ludicrous for God to be the tempter. He is not. He doesn't tempt anyone. But each of you is tempted when you are dragged away by your own evil desire and enticed. You might want to circle that word enticed because it's a really important word in the Greek. It's actually a word that is called deliazo. And what it means is to be lured by bait. In other words, it's a fishing term. Entice means to be lured by bait. About a month ago, our family went fishing to um, Tennessee, and uh, we fished every single day. Now, my dad is a really good fisherman. I, not so much. But... uh When we would go fishing, what he loved to do was to bait my daughter's hooks in such a way that they were bound to always catch something. And I was kind of a baiter that just put it on one time and then threw my pole in or my line in. You can tell I'm not much of a fisherman because if you throw your pole in, you don't catch anything, okay? And so he would figure it out, and I would only do it like one time, and then you know cast my my line in. But he would like take that worm, and he would put it on once, and then he'd put it on again and again and again and again. And uh, he knew that bluegill would get nightcrawlers. I didn't know that. I was you know baiting other things, and and my daughter Jordan, he taught her all of this, and she's like casting out and the first day she got a dozen bluegill. I mean, every single time the kid like threw it in, I think we have a picture of her there. Um, And every single time she's like getting her picture taken and uh, I'm getting frustrated. And I'm like, what is up with this? And she just keeps getting more and more and more bluegill. And finally she starts talking trash. And uh, any 12 year old that talks trash to me, I don't like it. And so You know, she's like, hey, Dad, I'm on number six. Have you caught anything? And I'm like, oh, that kid. So for the next few days, I just watched my dad exactly how he baited their hooks, how they did it all, and then they learned how to do it, and I started doing it myself. And, uh, you know, I watched this and watched this and watched this until one day I figured out exactly how they were doing it. And so I baited mine exactly the same. And on the last day, I caught a two-pound bass. we have a picture of it uh, there. Now this is the, there, thank you, thank you. You know what they did in first celebration? That's why I don't like first celebration people. Because they're all going away thinking I didn't catch much because they only did the first picture. But this, no, turn it back, Mikey. See, on on holiday weekends, they want to make me look bad. But this was huge, you know. And so I had this. And so Jordan looks at it and she's like feeling all bad and I just pushed her in the water said, take that, punk, you know. No, I really didn't do that. Now, here's the deal. What James is getting at is that there is an evil one, an enemy, who knows exactly what your bait is. He knows exactly how to bait the hook, and he knows exactly how to do his bait in such a way to get you away from the things of God And to get you to give in to the temptation of whatever his bait is. You see, Satan, the evil one, is a master fisherman. He knows exactly what bait to put on the hook to get you. And folks, every one of us in this room has power. There are weaknesses that we have. And he knows what the bait is. And he knows how to lure us into that. His sole purpose is to still, kill, and destroy. To still away your hope, to kill you in the process and destroy. And he does it with bait that he knows that you will take. And so my question for you this morning is this. Can you name your bait? Can you name your bait? Maybe for some of you, If you really had to name your bait, it would be shame. The evil one knows things you've done in your past, and you know stuff you've done in your past. And every time you think about, oh, God loves me, he cares for me. And then all of a sudden you think, yeah, but I did this and this. And he goes, yeah, you did. And he just takes that bait, and he just shows it to you, and he gets you to take it once again. For others of you, your bait may not be shame, but it's addiction. You just have a tendency, you can't get away from the bottle. Late at night, when you walk by the computer, you can't help but look at some porn. You take the bait. The next one is money. Some of you are just like, money, 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 and you just want money. And some of you just long for it so much, and you'll do all kinds of things, and you're struggling financially right now, but it's because you want money money you take the bait and then the last one is a relationship for some of you you want a relationship so bad that you will hook up one night the reality is you don't realize that you're the one getting hooked all the time and you take the bait folks the bible is clear that there is someone out there who is dangling bait in front of you. And will you be like David and take the bait? Or will you choose to seek God's power? I'd like to close by just kind of rapid fire style, kind of help you to understand how you can avoid temptation. We're all going to be tempted. No one doesn't get tempted. Jesus was tempted. But when the temptation comes, how can we avoid it? And so here's the first thing. You have to name the bait. You have to name the bait. If you can't name the bait, folks, the bait is going to have you. And the enemy will lure you in Again and again. Whatever it is. If you can't name that, it's going to be very tough. So for example, if your bait is gossip, every time you get a little kind of juicy information, you're just like, oh, I just got to share this and add a little bit more on it here and there. If that's what your bait is, you have to name it at the very beginning. This is gossip. It's wrong. And I've got to name it so I can shut it down, so I can stop it. So you've got to name the bait. The second thing is you need to play it out. You've got to actually play out what would happen if I took this bait. So here's a thought. There's Jordan. She's fishing for bluegill, and she fishes for these bluegill with night crawlers. And let's imagine that you're a bluegill. And you're down in the water, and you're just like, you're looking around. And all of a sudden, you see this line come down, and there's this nightcrawler. You're like, oh, I love nightcrawlers. But instead of taking the bait, you kind of play it out in your mind as a bluegill. And you're like, if I take that, this is what's going to happen. There's a 12-year-old girl on the other end of this line who's going to reel me in, and then they're going to take pictures of me, and they're going to take a selfie Of themselves to be able to show it. And then they're going to put it out on the social media, which is Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, whatever. And then their dad might be a pastor. And he might stand up and give an illustration about how I took the bait. And then they're going to take me and throw me in a cooler all by myself. But when they get home, they're going to take me out of the cooler, they're going to put me on a table, they're going to cut off my head, and they're actually going to skin me in such a way that I'm going to be filleted. And then, they're going to put me on a grill, and they're going to burn me, John Bunch, and um, that's my dad, by the way, and everyone's going to complain about this burnt fish, and I'm going to be dead folks that's what it means to play it out because if you don't play it out you'll give in to your temptation i mean no one ever goes to a casino and starts gambling a whole bunch of money thinking you know what one day i think i might get addicted a guy never goes and says you know what i'm going to take this bait but i could lose my family he never thinks, I desire money so bad, I deserve the money, I demand it, and they go on and on and on, and all of a sudden they lose everything. They go bankrupt, and they're trying to get money off their family. That person never played it out when they headed down a road of destruction. A woman who wrecks her marriage never does so by thinking, Oh, this guy's flirting with me right now. I think it's all just fine. And then they all of a sudden, they kind of meet together with a group of people, but then they meet alone for lunch, and then those lunches turn into dinners, and pretty soon it goes on and on and on, and they sleep together, Together, and she never thinks, I just desire some attention. I deserve someone who will listen to me. I demand to finally have someone Love, But this person never played it out. And they were headed down that road. Folks, if you don't play out what potentially could happen, you will always be lured away and not within God. So you've got to name the bait, play it out, and then finally you need to meditate. Now I don't mean kind of an Eastern kind of religion like, Oh, self absorption. I want to self self. Okay? Not talking about that. I'm talking about meditation in which you actually open up God's words and you meditate on these words. You read just a short passage, maybe just 10 verses or so, but you read it and then you allow the Bible to actually read you where it might convict you, where it may challenge you, where it'll encourage you, where it'll love you. But you find a place or a chair. And you sit and you do that. And you know, when you have a daily time with God over and over and over again, it doesn't mean that you're not going to be tempted, but you have power to overcome it. Almost every single morning, uh, I tend to go to this place right here, which is the Beech Grove Cemetery. And I have my quiet time. Now, some of you might say, that's kind of weird. Why would you go to a cemetery? You know Why? Because no one bugs me there. There is no one calling me, coming up to my car, nothing. And I park my car right underneath that. I'm not telling you when I go there, because some of you will try to figure out where I'm at. But I go there by myself, and I open up God's Word, and I simply meditate on it, and then I allow these words to convict me, to challenge me, to love me to encourage me. And so my question for you today is, when the temptation comes, do you have anything in your fishing tackle to go against the evil one? Will you be willing to actually say, God, I'm going to name the bait. I'm going to play out what would happen if if I really did this all the way to the end, and then that you would be willing to say, I will meditate with God and go deep with the one who knows me best and loves me most. Loving God, thank you so much for reminding us today that with great power comes great responsibility. God, help us to know how to control our desires not go down that slippery slope saying, I desire and then I deserve and then finally I demand. Lord, help us know how to name our faith that when we are tempted, that we would play it out all the way. what it is. And the truth is, you've fallen into temptation and you've messed up your life. Well, I want you to know that Jesus was tempted in every single way, but He did not sin. And that is why when He died on a cross and He rose again, He could take on your sin and you could be saved and exchange took place. Jesus got our sin and what we received was his freedom and his grace and his mercy. Because the truth is he loves you way too much for you to continue to be overwhelmed by the faith. And today he wants to begin a relationship with you. And so today if you're at that point if you're ready to receive Christ invite you to say this prayer and maybe for some of you it's a recommitment that you've just drifted away from him that you've taken some bait recently and you need a new start and if that's you I simply invite you to repeat this prayer after me but you don't pray it alone you won't be put on a spot but we pray this out loud together in community here so simply everyone just repeat after me Heavenly Father forgive me of my sins Surrender. I surrender to you. Be the Lord of my life. And be my Savior. Jesus, fill me with your Holy Spirit. So I can serve you. And know you. Every day of my life. My life is not my own. Today I give it to you. In Jesus' name I pray.